1: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for September 30th, 2021, the Get Those Huddle Masses Out of My Yard edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C., and I'm joined by Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Good morning. And by John Dickerson of CBS Sunday Morning. Hello, John. Hello to you both. This week, it's Thursday morning when we're taping, and it's make or break week, or maybe even make or break day for Democrats. Can they find a way to pass an infrastructure bill and build back better? Can they raise the debt ceiling? Looks like they're going to stop the government shutdown, at least. That's one That's one down. Then we will talk about vaccine mandates. Are they working? And then the United States is brutally divided over immigration and has an ongoing crisis on the southern border. We'll be joined by the great Caitlin Dickerson, the immigration reporter at The Atlantic, to mull it all over. And we'll reveal whether Caitlin Dickerson is related to John Dickerson later in the show. <laughs> Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, dear listeners, we are still gathering conundrums for our conundrum show. So many good ones have come in. You know, there, there are so many fun ones from years past. The would you rather have a washing machine or the vote one. So that one is so good. Would you prefer to re-experience your best memory or wipe away your worst? Please send us your conundrums for this year to slate.com slash conundrum.
2: Hey, David, before we continue, can I apologize to GabFest listeners across the green expanse of the globe that last week... Oh, I know what you're apologizing for. Oh, my for. God.
1: Oh, it was so... I At the time, I was like, I think John's not right about that.
2: I but know. Well... Go ahead. I... um as the desk clerk says, uh, I should have said, am I hearing you right? But um, uh, but I didn't. And I uh, only heard the tail end of what you said, which I thought was a line from me and Bobby McGee. But um, it was not. It was from like a Rolling Stone. And those uh, listeners... who uh, were terrified. It was at the beginning of the show, too, which means it was probably like having an appetizer of very strong vinegar, which might have totally ruined the experience for many people listening. But I apologize. So you
3: got a song title wrong. A song
2: lyric. lyric. A song lyric wrong about uh, somebody who uh, GabFest listeners know that I've <laughs> I've written about and spent a lot of time listening to. So And it was funny, David. When you paused, I thought, huh, like he's doing something else, but that's, that's what I get for not uh, listening. So something was happening here, and I didn't know what it was, but I am— Do you?
1: Do you, Mr. Dickerson?
2: I was uh, older than I'm younger than that now. Today is the
1: day, perhaps, the House may, will, could vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed the Senate— and the questions are many will progressives defect and vote against it to protest the undermining of their more expansive build back better bill the 3.5 trillion that's the only thing anyone knows about it. 3.5 trillion dollar bill will any republicans vote to get it passed so that it could pass without uh, with some democratic defections is there any possible way to get 50 democrats in the senate to vote for a big expansion of the domestic safety net, which is what the Build Back Better bill would do? And will the debt ceiling get raised, or will it get raised without a trillion dollar coin or a quadrillion dollar coin, which would be my choice, a quintillion dollar coin? John, can you try to explain, I asked you to do this last week, but I'll ask you again, pretty simply, the various issues that Congress is facing today and uh What the what the kind of very staggered timelines are? Right. I
2: mean, it's by the time people listen to this, we maybe we will undoubtedly been outpaced by events. But they got four issues. The continuing government spending looks like it's going to be taken care of. That'll they'll they'll do a continuing resolution to fund the government through the third of December. Then there's the question of the debt ceiling. and the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, that has yet to be resolved, largely because Mitch McCon- the Republicans are offering no help to Democrats, and Mitch McConnell is saying Democrats have to do it on their own, but he's then allowing his members to filibuster, which means that he's he's set a threshold that it's impossible for Democrats on their own to do it because Democrats have a simple majority, not a supermajority. Then there's the question of the two bills. You mentioned infrastructure and social spending, and at the heart of that is... is is has more to do with internal Democratic Party politics, and it has to do with basically the sequencing of bills and trust between moderates and progressives. And this goes back to, well, it goes back to two big things. One is, you know, that we are still in the shadow of the fact that we had a pandemic that laid bare a lot of inequities in American life. And there are people who believe that those inequities need to be addressed, and this is the best chance to do so. The people who believe that are people who've been fighting to redress these inequities for the last, you know, well, their entire lifetimes and there's been a clash between how you best do that and that clash is based on an assessment of what people think voters will tolerate because ultimately one of the things that lawmakers are making a guess about is how voters in the places that will determine control of congress are going to react to what gets passed or doesn't get passed and then finally you have a basically hard truth which is Despite the views of people, progressives, who would like to pass all $3.5 trillion of spending, you have two Democrats in the Senate who just don't want to do it, and you can't get around them. This week, just as progressives were being reminded of all the reasons they can't trust promises by Democratic leadership, the promises from Democratic leadership, including the president, that say, hey, we've got the moderates on board, too— if they were skeptical, they were given fresh reason to be. When Joe Manchin published a letter in which he used lots of hot rhetoric that sounds exactly like Republicans about how Democrats are trying to totally rewrite the American social compact. And then finally, Senator Sinema, basically, when reporters were saying, you know, progressives would like to know where you are on these positions, gave an answer that was like, "Well, I'm standing right here in front of the elevator." So she kind of. You know, in that flippant response, gave progressives some indication of what she really thought about the nature of their concerns.
1: So, Emily, there is this uh, undercurrent, and as John says, we may know by the time you listen to this what has happened undercurrent of thinking that progressives should blow up the bipartisan infrastructure bill if they can, if it looks like they're uh, more expansive bill the one that is more dear to them the build back better bill is going to get either killed or cut down into to you know less than a trillion dollars or a trillion dollars something much smaller should they do that
3: so i mean i would have said no because i'm such a wimp about games of chicken which is what this is but i think that If the vote for the trillion-dollar infrastructure bill comes up today or tomorrow and they haven't gotten any assurances that the larger reconciliation bill is actually going to come to the floor, that they have the votes to support it, if they don't even know what the naysayers want exactly other than a smaller price tag – then yeah, I think maybe they do have to show that they're really serious. Maybe this is about making it clear that they really are willing to go to those lengths, and then the negotiations kind of begin in earnest. But, uh, but I don't know. John, what do you think?
2: you know Emily you mentioned the assurances that that progressives need they're essentially meaningless because democratic leaders can't promise what mansion and cinema want they i mean think about in west virginia joe biden lost west virginia by almost 40 points there isn't a county in west virginia that's voted for a democratic president since 2008 he has no leverage over mansion and mansion's obviously in lots of different positions on things cinema's even harder to pin down so in without those being you know any possible assurances what people like Jamal Bowie and Josh Marshall have pointed, said, is if you give in to them without making them be specific, you're essentially rewarding bad behavior. And the consequences of doing that are are grave, even though you're going to take a short-term hit. Um, and then the co- political question is, do you take enough of a long-term hit by having the disaster that that would create, that it matters in the places where the election will matter in 2022?
1: Emily, there's a case from progressives. The case for, for, from progressives for doing a large bill as opposed to accepting a small bill is basically we're all yoked together as Democrats. We rise and fall together. The more we do big popular stuff together, and if you look, the Build Back Better bill is wildly popular in its parts. If you take each part and you poll it, people, are pop- people like the policies proposed. The more we do that, the better it is for everybody because the election will be national. So there's no happy refuge if you're a moderate, there actually isn't a happy refuge for you as there used to be. there's no occupiable, sanctimonious middle ground that you can benefit from because elections are nationalized, so you just you, a moderate, have the same electoral uh pressures on you as we progressives now that's not true for Joe Manchin because of what John just said but it, it is it true for everybody else I mean is it are progressives right that actually like The bigger and better this bill is, the more it benefits everybody, even moderates.
3: I mean, I think there's lots of evidence about the national valence of congressional elections and how hard it is to escape that, that it kind of sticks to you, given the way the press covers politics. Whether the American people is going to absorb this bill is like a great thing. I think we don't know because it's getting tarnished and all the buffeting about whether it's too expensive and all this like, oh, it's going to make inflation worse, which Manchin has totally played into Republican hands on that. Then I think there's a question about whether people really understand the constituent parts of the bill and are, fo- I mean, you have to be really following this pretty closely to be up on all of this. It's kind of complicated. It's hard to hold it all in your head. On the other hand, if the Democrats say, this is President Biden's agenda, this is what we ran on, but we can't get it together to pass this, even though we have the votes to do much of it through reconciliation. I just don't see how that's a winning argument. So that part of the progressive, you know, those talking points about why this needs to pass, I mean, that just makes sense to me as a matter of politics. But John, what do you think?
2: Well, I think the best, I guess the best outcome is if you are a a progressive, you say, there's no way 3.5 trillion is going to get through the Senate and the two senators who don't want it. So it's going to shrink. But if it's going to shrink, A, we don't want to reward—we don't want to make this so easy for the two senators we're relying on because it sends a signal to our supporters— By the way, I mean, this is why it's so interesting about how the the people who are in the center of this fight, their guesses about 2022 are important. So you have a race in Virginia that that pundits increasingly believe is uh, Terry McAuliffe, the race for governor of Virginia, four weeks away. Terry McAuliffe is in dire worse straits because Biden's numbers are dropping. So in a place like Virginia, which is more purple, and in districts that are going to be purple in 2022, the thinking goes – Get something done, show you can govern, and don't get tarred as being a party captive of the left, because that's how you have to run in those districts. Progressives would say, even in those districts, you need progressives to turn out, and you need progressives to spend money and write checks, and so um, don't deflate them by giving in uh, to cinema and mansion. So you have to fight this, and it'll go down, and then... This next round afterwards will clarify the thinking of mansion and cinema find out exactly what they don't like is it the pre-universal pre-k is it help with child care is it help with elder care is it the environmental provisions because there's an interesting clash between cinema and mansion on the environmental provisions Arizona cares about it more uh, cares about environmental uh, mitigation or, or climate change mitigation than they do in West Virginia so get them to focus and then okay fine we may have to agree to something smaller but it will make it will be specific. And in this fight for specificity, we might be able to get more than we would get right now in this kind of vague opposition that we're seeing in the Senate. It is,
1: this is a kind of a side note, it is kind of infuriating to me. In fact, it's not kind of infuriating. It's totally infuriating to me that in this vast Build Back Better and the infrastructure bill, which are so expansive in what they're doing, that there are incredibly popular things that are so good for the country that are not being done because of just the the deep cowardice and legislative capture. We're not going to allow the IRS to police rich people and their tax cheating better. So these are people, tax cheats, who are robbing billions and billions and billions of dollars from us because they're rich and they can figure out ways to do it. And we're not going to give the IRS the resources to track them down. We're going to continue to allow drug companies to dictate prices to Medicare so that we pay ridiculous sums for drugs. That's a way that we could save, you know, billions and billions of dollars – Take make people's lives much better except for big pharma and super rich people, and yet these things don't even make it. It's a bill that's this expansive, and they still don't even make it into this bill. It's, it is infuriating to me.
3: And those are some of the most popular provisions, which also suggests that the moderates who are cutting those provisions are not thinking about the politics in the smartest way. And I have to say, you know, reading about, like, this fundraiser with big business that Senator Cinema is holding right in the middle of all this, you just start to wonder if some of these folks are bought and sold, and that this is, you know, particular parts of corporate America, their kind of last stand is to try to prevent some of the parts of the spill they don't like by giving lots of money or making lots of promises about what Cinema gets to do when she's out of office. I have no idea, but it just feels... I just don't understand. Like, if you're elected as a Democratic senator, this isn't this sub- what you want to do? Like, maybe not all of it. Maybe there are ways to improve it, etc. But the basic idea, like this, is the Democratic agenda right now. What are you doing there?
2: Well, you're but you're elected in a demo, in a state like Arizona, where it's where she reads her politics as being harder, and that even if you want to do elements of the individual bill, let's say like the environmental provisions. Maybe that's all she wants to do. And the downside of being labeled in a state like Arizona as a person who's fundamentally uh, redrawing what America is about, which is what Manchin charged the the Build Back Better agenda does, the agenda of of his party's president, that that's more of a damage than than the things you want to get um, that are smaller. And you believe somehow that if the whole thing collapses, you'll be able to get a smaller version that's more... So you don't think you'll pay a big price for the coming collapse of the $3.5 trillion. So she's just reading her narrow interest. It's just the way the, the way the votes are right now. The margins are so thin. One senator, or in this case two, reading their interest narrowly is basically determining what's going to happen with the whole party's agenda.
3: Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would like to think that one could think beyond one's narrow interest in this important elected position. I know that sounds naive, but come on. And also... She is such a cipher. Like, she hasn't actually come out and said what you just said, which is totally plausible. But I have no idea. And I'm tired of, like, trying to – I don't want to think about it. Like, come right. on.
1: Right. And Mansion, you know, is just a totally transactional – as I've said, I think, last week, it's just, like, imagine what a, what a big – big uh, beefy politician from the 1970s would do and then you just like that's what mansion will do mansion will go low there will be a point mansion you know it's 2.2 trillion dollars or something is exactly where mansion will be and and you know an extra 100 million dollars for some 100 or 2 billion dollars for some project in west virginia that's very sweet but with cinema it's so mysterious she's such a mysterious figure I, know. I, know. I don't really understand much about her but she's so cryptic
2: it's and weird. Exactly. All of this clash that we're seeing right now is the totally predictable result of the fact that they have tiny and thin margins uh, in Congress. Like it was nuts to say that that Joe Biden was the next FDR. I mean. I'm the next Tom Brady. You know how that falls apart? When I have to actually go play football. Because it turns <laughs> out you're constrained by reality. And the reality was out there, just as in reality is the case that I'm not Tom Brady. Well, and it,
1: you're, but, but it's different. You're not Tom Joe Biden actually could have played the game. No, no, he plays the game well. You're you're saying it's circumstances. It's not circumstances that don't make you Tom Brady. I don't
2: know. I think circumstances mean a president with with almost no margin in the Senate and and only a handful of votes in the House can't in a old coalitions that win are diverse and particularly when you have Republicans who are not helping and in fact doing everything they can to thwart you. It is impossible to pass. An, an FDR-like agenda through two houses of Congress, like it just Joe Manchin was still there when Joe Biden got elected, like and cinema was there too. It was it was foreseen just because your ambitions are big. That's the analogy, you know. Just because my ambition is to be like Tom Brady doesn't mean I am Tom Brady. It means I have to actually execute. And if you took a look at the execution issues, they were super complex and they were always going to be hard and. The fact that so so many analogies were made to his FDR-like possibilities was just crazy to me.
1: This episode of The Gap Fest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame. And I hope she Hector's my girlfriend to update it with more photos, but it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. Gabfest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code gabfest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We're beginning to see results from the first rounds of vaccine mandates, and the news is really positive in general, despite what skeptic David Plotz was saying last week. United Airlines has had almost universal compliance with its employee mandate. Various hospitals and other healthcare facilities are also seeing pretty strong compliance. And the situation, Emily, it seems to me, is where two things are true at once. Thing one is job-based mandates work. The vast majority of people do not want to lose their jobs and will endure some insult to their bodies and to their sense of self to maintain their jobs.
3: Perceived insult. Continue on.
1: Well, it is an insult to their sense of self. Okay, fine. A, A perceived insult to their body, perhaps. Yet, at the same time, it is also true that enough people object to these mandates that it will in fact also cause key shortages in certain jobs and cause a lot of rage and unhappiness. So even though you have vast compliance and very few people are going to end up losing their jobs in healthcare, we still have significant shortages. There's still problems finding enough workers in part because of COVID burnout, but in part because people just don't don't want to uh, deal with this. So both things can be true at once.
3: Yeah, both things can be true at once, and especially in the healthcare field, given the toll COVID has taken on so many people who do that work. You know, a tiny percentage of noncompliance can really be difficult for healthcare systems and hospitals to handle. So that's a real burden. On the other hand, the uptick in the vaccination numbers has been totally significant. I mean, we've seen numbers in like the mid seventies go to the mid nineties that's really different. I wish that it wasn't taking this. I'd be much happier if this was carrots instead of sticks, but carrots didn't work.
1: Where else do you think, do you guys think, assuming you think these mandates are good, there should be vaccine mandates?
3: Well, I mean, President Biden's order is going to put them in place for companies across America that have 100 and more workers. One question that's going to start to loom are school systems. So Los Angeles, I think, has mandated the vaccine for the kids who are old enough to be eligible You're going to need to have a really big outreach effort to get those kids vaccinated. That's going to be something that the school system is going to have to have those clinics at the schools. Right. Because I think if I'm right, those numbers right now for the 12 and older are only around 35 percent. So that's a big lift. And you know, you don't want vulnerable kids not to be able to go to school like this is a tough one, right? Because it's their parents choice, but the kids are going to be bearing the cost. And then I think when we have vaccines approved for younger children, there's going to be some, according to the polls, a lot of parents are not going to run out and do it right away. And so with like our measles and mumps vaccines, the traditional ones, school has been an enormously important vehicle for vaccination. It's something we've taken for granted and have very high compliance with. But this is a newer vaccine. And now with all this attention on vaccination as this divisive kind of tribal issue. I'm worried about how that's all going to play out in the schools. And I'm horrified by the the idea in Florida that some Republican legislators have put forward to take away the mandatory mumps and measles vaccines for schools. That just is wild. I I just, that is really depressing.
2: The stupidity kind of going back in reverse direction, right? Now, it's not just related to this, but it's now clawing back the gains of the enlightenment. Um, That's if that goes through in Florida, but I guess. Right. I mean, it's just,
3: right. We should say they haven't actually passed it, but man.
1: So other places to do vaccine mandates. So schools is a good one. Emily, you raised last week airline travel. A lot of people think that uh, to get the the fifty percent of Americans who travel on airplanes to get vaccinated, Or forty seven percent who travel. Forty
3: seven percent. Yes, let's make it clear. It's less than half. <laughs> uh, we can
1: I mean, what about like? I remember back in the in the nineties, Republicans were all were always like, if you wanted to get any public benefit, you had to get drug tested. Like, what are there any states that are saying, in order to get a public benefit, you have to get vaccinated? Imagine that as a mandate. If they, the way they used to make make people on welfare get drug tested every periodically, if that was a if that was a requirement, that would be. Mm. I mean, it would be a real outrage. But in different circumstances, you can imagine people pushing for that. I'm not. Yeah, I would I start
3: with the most vulnerable people and take away their food stamps and their Medicaid.
1: One of the things that I that I realized this week as I was thinking about it is why is it that healthcare workers and cops and teachers are where the tensions are about vaccination? And, and I, I was doing a book event with Malcolm Gladwell about his book, um, Talking to Strangers. And I realized like, oh, the reason that the tension is there for these groups is that most of us, most people, Americans are in situations where we only encounter people who are like us. Our tribal sorting is such that we tend to encounter people who are very much culturally similar to us. We work with people who are culturally similar. We live with people who are similar to us. And so groups that are similar tend to be homo-vaccinated. They tend to have the same vaccine status as opposed to heterovaxed where the people you meet are of a different vaccine status. But if you are a nurse or a health worker or a cop or teacher, you are constantly meeting people who are different than you. That is your job. The rest of us do that much more infrequently, and that's why the tensions fill up in those positions.
2: Wait, why? Why would the meeting of people different than you create resistance to a vaccine or create? I because, mean, I thought the tension because you was, would
1: care. You would care, like you you're, you, John. I, well, I, I don't want to make presumptions. I circulate among people who are vaccinated. Everyone I know is vaccinated. Right. So when I go somewhere, when I hmm, do something, I basically know like everyone's vaccinated. But the idea that, like, I, that I'm, that, this is like where where people, you know, would you send your child to a place where there was a gun? And I know I live in a world where no, no, my children are not going to places where their friends are going to have guns, their friends' parents have guns. But if you live in a situation where that that is uncertain, Mm -hmm. that is a place of tension. Where's you the mean like right. if you
3: have to your dental assistant or someone in your doctor's yes. office, like, and you you have to go to those places, yes. like no. you need yes. those services or right. you need the cops, yeah. maybe. I thought well, you meant the, the cops.
2: I thought you meant the tension from why are we seeing clashes between um, healthcare workers, uh, first responders, police, and teachers? I thought it was because those are most of those are touched by the government in some kind of way, federal or state, and therefore they're the ones that are facing these mandates or are facing incredible pressure if you're a small business owner
1: yeah that that's i thought that's the tension you were yeah but but you don't hear it about like oh the clerks at the at the office government accountability office like no one's like oh are they vaccinated or not no one no one gives a shit about whether the those are also government employees it's the government employees who who like encounter other people
2: Right, so there aren't that
3: many public-facing people in that second category. Though some of them are public-facing.
2: Well, do you or do you think there? I guess it's part of this is a definitional question. But I mean, also, it seems to me that it is more surprising that people in the care industry, and I think of all of those three, as being you. You get into the public safety, teaching, and health um, business because you care about the broader community. You have a you know and in fact when you think about what people in emergency rooms and and first responders do is they have such a care for other human beings that they're willing to basically risk their lives when they know nothing about the person whose life they're risking it for right so they they are incredibly selfless for the common community and so when it comes to a situation where the general perceived wisdom and and you know tonnage of scientific fact is to help the community you should do x there's a clash between what they've signed up to do and what they're refusing to do. That seems me, to me to be one of the other uh, reasons the, that those businesses that those professions you mentioned are in tension with this moment. Right. Can, right.. can I ask you guys a question which is that when we think about the collapse of democracy, one of the big problems with a collapsing democracy is the epistemological crisis of it's not just, you know, if you need to have a well-informed republic for, for it to be healthy, Usually people say, well, that depends on whether the press is any good, but the press can be great. But if people have decided to come up with their own facts about things, regardless of what they're reading in the papers or whatever else, then you've got a big crisis about information that people can make collective decisions about. Do you think that the, the um, epistemological crisis in vaccines is acute because it has to do with the body and in other things or that this is just and that in other words, you'd have it. Uh, You know, no matter what age we were living in or whether we are in an extra particular um, demonstration of the epistemological crisis we're in with respect to vaccines.
3: That's a great question. I think the fractured media and social media landscape is playing a role. So all the misinformation that is traveling on social media, like that's documented and we know that's happening in the same way that it happened with the election Um, and with voting. You see particularly virulent strains of misinformation circulating highly, highly among people who are seeking out that information or are in communities where like that's what they see on Facebook. And then I think also similar to the election, there have been certain right wing commentators who have totally fed into this. And if that's your diet, then you are seeing that and other people you know are seeing it. I mean, I definitely know people on the right who, when they get their a lot of their news from social media or something they catch on television, and it's completely likely to be skeptical about the vaccine. And they just have a different sense of the costs and benefits and the risks than I do.
2: You know, I think, go ahead, David.
1: Well, the three of us and people older than us have the blessing and curse of having lived in a more obedient, compliant and agreeable time. That a lot that because there was less media, because media traveled more slowly, because there was a more of a political consensus for most people, especially if you were kind of white and middle class, there was a sense of social order and and uh communal action that was easier to to make happen in america from say the you know the start of the second world war until until the 80s i mean that's not to say that you know you obviously have mov- you know civil rights movements and gay rights movements and things like that but but there was all fundamentally with an order that people were holding most people were trying to hold together and if you look at societies where there's been high vaccine compliance and high compliance with public health orders there's societies that are more homogenous and more homo- I don't mean homogenous like ethnically I mean homogenous in political thinking like either because it's just they're politically controlled or more totalitarian or just they're they're traditionally more homogenous in how people act and like we're just not that society anymore like it's it's so fractured and the, and part of that is a function of the media fracturing and social media being this this terrible accelerant but um yeah i don't know i don't know where i'm going with that
2: well i would like and there's no way you could do this in a way that didn't offend people but we it has become the case with popular public figures in particular who have been vaccine skeptics but also you hear it in the in the man on the street interviews done with people who don't want to get the vaccine people say well i'm doing some research And there's obviously a smug, you know, uh, response to that, which is like, you know, the quality of the research is like, you know, what your barber told you. Um, But I but I wonder if there were a sensitive way you could do because it gets to where people go to adjudicate these questions in their lives. And that tells us something about how messed up our common information is. It goes to the social media poison and the public partisan media poison. But it also goes to this kind of human lack of feeling any kind of control in the world around you and where you seek control and what that says about how people feel like a lot of them, they're on a ride they didn't sign up for. And I mean, I think it could tell you something really interesting about human vulnerability when it gets to this lonely decision you have to make. But I fear there's no way you could actually examine what it means to quote unquote do research. Also because you have people who are just totally in bad faith saying, well, there's more research to do as if it's an open question when a billion people have been vaccinated.
3: Can I go back to one hobby horse of mine, which is I really wonder if vaccine mandates included acceptance of COVID, of if you'd had COVID and had natural immunity, if you could prove that you'd had COVID if your antibody levels were higher, you had proof of a positive test, if this would have played out differently.
2: Play that out for me? Well, there
3: are some people I keep reading about, like nurses who are like, I don't want to take the vaccine. I had COVID. I think I have natural immunity. I think that's enough. Or I think that's better. Now, it may well not be better, but it does not look like we have evidence that it's worse. And that is a population of people who might have been brought on board that we missed. And I don't actually see how the science dictated that outcome.
1: Yeah, I agree. Slate Plus members, you get so many benefits, no ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of various Slate podcast shows, supporting the work that we get to do here on the GabFest, and, of course, you get bonus segments on the GabFest. This week's bonus segment, a doozy listener question, what year in history do we wish we could have been podcasting in? If there were a GabFest, if there were a GabFest before there were podcasts, when would we have wanted to do it? Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member today. Immigration has become a permanent crisis in American life. There is vast disagreement among us about how many people and what kind of people should be allowed to move legally to the United States. There's even more disagreement about how those who have come here without papers and stage should be treated. And there is also confusion and fury about how to welcome or turn away the tens of thousands of people who are flocking to our Southern border, seeking work and safety. This disagreement is paralyzing and effectively means there is literally no chance because of this paralysis of Congress adopting any kind of immigration reform. Uh, well, that's me concluding that. I've just made a conclusion. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe it's, there's, there is some chance. We are joined today by one of the most brilliant reporters on immigration, Caitlin Dickerson, who is a staff writer at The Atlantic, which she recently joined after five years, I think, at The New York Times. Yep. Uh, Caitlin, welcome to the Gap Fest. And number one, make it clear to our listeners— are you or are you not a relative of John Dickerson's?
4: Uh, thank you so much for having me, David. I am of no relation to John Dickerson. So nothing that I say here is biased in favor or, or against him. First
3: good point in your favor. Right,
2: exactly. <laughs> Entering in strong to the conversation.
4: <laughs> just want to make that clear.
2: And the average of Dickerson-related comments on the Gab Fest has just gone up considerably in quality. Uh,
1: that is definitely true. So, Caitlin Dickerson, uh, pardon this really primer level question, but what quickly is happening at the southern border and why are so many of the people who are at our southern border right now Haitian?
4: Well, what's happening is that we've had a mini surge in migration. Um, We have big ones. We have small ones. They happen all the time under every administration. It doesn't matter who's president. Right now, we're seeing a lot of Haitians, about 40,000 to be specific. And by all accounts, that's not because of the recent assassination of the president in Haiti, nor because of the the deadly earthquake that followed soon after, but because people from Haiti who'd been living throughout Central and South America got fed up with a situation where they faced discrimination, where they may have been making ends meet but not doing super well, and also because of this idea they had that they would have been welcomed into the United States if they pick up, picked up and left. And the question is, where did that idea come from? Again, I think there are a few answers, and, and I hate to – I'll preface almost everything that I say with that, because immigration is always just so complicated and there's so much going on. But I think what we see here is, you know, the Biden administration extended – Temporary Protected Status Protections for Haitians who had already been living in the United States up until July 29th. So this is you know temporary status that we offer to people who are from places that are dealing with natural disasters, that are dealing with political disasters. We first created this designation after the deadly 2010 earthquake in Haiti. The Biden administration decided to extend protections for people who came to the U.S. after 2010, hadn't left, you know, let them continue to live here and work here legally. But it didn't open the door to new people. But I think that that was confusing, both because news just may not have, you know, come through with as much nuance as it should have, but also because smuggling organizations that operate in the countries where most of these Haitians at our border now were living, they love to create a moment of frenzy. They love to create a sense of urgency and to go around like literally door to door in communities and say to people, you got to get to the U.S. now if you're thinking about going, now's your moment. And they whip up, you know, a lot of excitement um, and people, you know, you know, drop their lives and they rush to the U.S. because they think they're going to have a chance. So I think that's why you have this critical mass of Haitians because of this messaging um, that all of a sudden created a sense of urgency and caused people to rush to the border. Should we just have much
3: more immigration? You know, when I... Think about this problem on the most micro level, like the man in the photograph who's being grabbed by the border agent on the horse. Like, that's horrifying. When I think of it on the most macro level, and I imagine like everyone in the world who wants to move somewhere else, I get totally overwhelmed. I find the idea of open borders like not realistic. But then I think, well, there has to be some kind of middle ground and we're not there. We've been incredibly restrictive and especially ungenerous about asylum from places like Haiti or Syria or Afghanistan now where we could be doing it really differently. And I wonder where you come down on that as someone who I think reaches for solutions as well as reporting and documenting what's happening to people.
4: Emily the answer to that is probably yes. I mean it's it's a really hard question to answer because we don't have clean data. We don't have a 10-year stretch of time where there are no natural disasters, no political calamities, no economic fluctuation either in the US or abroad to sort of analyze what kind of policies can we put into place so that the borders become calm, so that people, you know, flourish wherever they are whether that's in the United States or in their home countries. But I think that what I have seen over you know, 10 years of looking at this issue pretty concertedly is that there are people all over the world who need and want to take advantage of our asylum laws. But they're also coming here because those who do make it into the United States They get jobs right away. You know, they settle into the country, they put down roots, and sure enough, their lives are better than they had been in their home countries. And that message makes it back home, and it creates more and more migration. If we get to a point where our immigration laws, one, kind of acknowledge the fact that immigrants don't tend to be you know, people who fall into two, one of two discrete categories, those who need a job or those who need humanitarian protection. The reality is that most people need both. If we created enough visas for the low-wage work that asylees tend to do, to sustain the economy in a way that we don't have this kind of permanent underclass who we don't account for at all with our visa system, but but that our economy relies on nonetheless to actually sustain itself. If we had visas to address that situation, I think that you would have legal pathways that prevent people from having to put themselves in these dangerous situations. And you also have a situation where at some point these jobs fill up and then the message that's being sent back home changes. The new message is, you know, there, there aren't as many jobs available anymore. There's a little bit of evidence that we have to support the idea that this might work, like a, a reappropriation of visas that actually matched the, our economic needs as a country in that in the, t- in the early 2000s, as Mexico's economy grew, and then after 2008, when the American economy tanked and there was far less work available, Mexican migration dropped really precipitously and it's never come back. And so that is one indication that migration might tend to even out. Um, you wouldn't see these dramatic surges and so many people trying to cross the border illegally.
3: That's really interesting that the market actually has that kind of impact or could.
2: Caitlin, how do you see the pickle and the the handling, the pickle that Joe Biden's in and and his handling of it? Because my recollection from the beginning of the administration is that Biden had this view that there was a lot he was going to try to do to unwind the policies or lack of policies of the Trump administration. But he was also worried about sending the signal that you already addressed to to migrants who thought, aha, new, new sheriff is in town, so there won't be sheriffs in town. He was conflicted about the reform he wanted to do, but the signals it might send. Was there ever a sweet spot he could hit? And and how do you think they handle this kind of pelting with one challenge at the border after another?
4: I think that the pickle is is very significant and it's it's significant for two reasons. The Biden administration wants to make sure, first and foremost, it doesn't send a message internationally that everybody should come and rush our borders. And they want to send the message to their constituents in the United States, to Republicans in Congress who they're trying to get to trust them that, like you said, they want to to police the borders. And then there's also the very real logistical sense of being completely overwhelmed that happens in these small border patrol stations. You know, when you have 39,000 people sitting outside the border in a town of 50,000 people um, in a border patrol station that probably has a dozen or less people working at a time, it becomes very scary. You know, the message that's getting sent to, to D.C. headquarters is one of panic. And so... For all those reasons, I think you saw the Biden administration kind of seize up and revert back to tactics that were similar to you know what we saw President Obama try to do in his first few years in office, like, let's send this message to Congress, to the country, to the world that we're willing to crack down so that we can try to later get help for what it is that we want to achieve. In terms of a sweet spot, again, I, I, I would be lying if I said I was certain that if the Biden administration, rather than, you know, have a knee-jerk reaction toward deterrent measures, instead put a ton of pressure on Congress, you know, and and made that a public message that Congress really needs to fix this, Congress needs to pass something, even if it's temporary, um, so that we don't have to introduce these deterrent measures that we don't like, that we don't want, that we don't feel like represent us and who we want to be as a country. Um, I would be lying if I said I, I knew that would work, but... What I do know is that I, I see administration after administration do the same thing, have this knee-jerk reaction toward deterrence that does nothing in the long run to change things. And so for that reason, you know, as somebody who has no skin in the game, and it's easy for me to suggest it, I, I may have recommended, let's put the focus on Congress in this moment rather than you know creating another Band-Aid situation.
1: I want to turn to the, that congressional question, because it feels to me that immigration, like every other issue, has become... A victim of the polarization of the world, that immigration as a and the sort of whether you wanted more or less immigration, what kind you wanted that used to cross cut parties, like how you thought it did, wasn't necessarily associated with a party. Now it has become increasingly polarized, where you have a a right that is more and more and more fiercely anti-immigration of almost any sort, including very legal immigration, and a left that is more welcome to it. But doesn't that doesn't that uh, partisanship now make it impossible for it to be dealt with legislatively? What we end up with is this sort of ping-ponging executive authority, where one, we have an executive that wants to do it this way, and the next executive wants to do it the other way, depending on what party they're in. And also now a Supreme Court that is very likely to intervene partisan in a partisan way on the side of a of a Republican president so that it it makes me pretty hopeless that there's any sort of reasonable solution that can be reached, uh, through the, that, 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 that looks beyond whatever this current presidential administration is.
4: Mm hmm. The Supreme Court is a, is a total complicating factor that you almost have to deal with separately But if and when legislation is reached. I think the polarization we're experiencing now, it does make things more complicated and it doesn't, you know, counterpoints to that that come to mind for me are that we have never in the United States passed any kind of immigration legislation without a huge fight over it, without a huge degree of, uh, you know, back and forth, disagreement, multiple attempts at going to the table. You know, these, these laws tend to take years to get passed. And yet, you know, we have passed immigration laws. So that makes me think it could be possible. And, you know, the polarization is very real, but it doesn't span every single facet of immigration And how we're looking at our laws as a country, you know, as I'm sure you know, there's overwhelming support in the country for some aspects of immigration reform, offering, you know, full legal status and eventually a pathway to citizenship to dreamers, but also extending pathways towards citizenship for, you know, the majority of the undocumented population that's working, that have families here that don't have serious criminal records. And you also have, you know, throughout my time reporting on this issue. I've seen so many industries from the hospitality industry to agriculture, both you know farmers as well as food processing, you know these industries that tend to be aligned more with you know the Chamber of Commerce, more with the Republican party in general, these industry leaders are are begging in many cases for more visas and more workers. so we're kind of more aligned than we realize um, and the easy stuff I think could be dealt with legislatively. That, though, is part of the Biden administration's pickle and that, you know, they know that the real fights are going to be over things like asylum, who should get it and who shouldn't. And so their question is, do we carve out things that we can get everybody to agree on so that we make some sort of progress? Or is that sacrificing arguably the more vulnerable people, leaving them off to the side to be dealt with later so that we protect people who are kind of in precarious states, but, but in less maybe direct, immediate harm in the way that asylum seekers are.
3: So we were touching on the Supreme Court. And my understanding is that the Supreme Court's interventions from the conservative majority have been in response to executive orders and agency rules, right? So in the latest one was to say that the Biden administration didn't have the power to just get rid of Remain in Mexico, which was the Trump administration's way of um, Keeping people on the other side of the border while they were applying for asylum, if I'm right about that. Mm-hmm. I wonder if this, um, you know, perhaps impossible but really important concern of keeping the focus on Congress is actually the way outside of that legal dilemma, too. I mean, Congress has absolutely the power to legislate about immigration. Part of the idea of the supremacy of the national government is like it's their job, the states don't get to do it. And the problem with using presidential power to make big changes in immigration law aren't there for Congress. So anyway, I just wonder if that's one way in which even a conservative Supreme Court
4: would come along. That's right. That makes good sense. And and we have every indication at this point that just like the Trump administration ended up in court for almost every single one of the restrictions on immigration it introduced, if, if not all of them, uh, we have every indication that the Biden administration may very well end up in court for anything that they try to undo, that judges in places like Texas are going to continue. To rule against them, so it's yet another reason why focusing on Congress makes so much more sense. There are so many problems that come out of these flimsy policy changes that can be challenged in court or simply reversed by the next president who takes office.
2: And you know, and and just one of the ways in which we put all this pressure on the president to do things when it belongs to be handled somewhere else. Which brings me to the question of the vice president so what happens is presidents get stuck with this damn issue and they can't say congress should deal because everybody says oh you're not dealing with the border so then he puts it in kamala harris's lap which seems like no present at all what can we um what what do you think caitlin about the vice president and and is she doing anything sort of innovative or different or is this just like an impossible thing that's been dumped in her lap and and we shouldn't expect much.
4: I, I don't think she's really doing anything that novel or different. And, and you know, and I understand. I mean, having covered immigration all these years, it, it's this issue that nobody wants to deal with. It's like radioactive. Um, it, you know, everybody's upset about it, but nobody can agree on a solution. You know, but the way that uh, the vice president and her aides, I think, were very open um, about, you know, just being unhappy with having this assignment when it was given to her. And they were, you know, just clearly, you know, calling up the New York Times and saying, you know, you really wish we hadn't gotten this assignment. It's kind of like, as an immigration reporter, it's like, that's not helping. You know, the <laughs> fact that nobody wants to touch this issue and everybody wants to just, you know, act as if it doesn't exist or leave it to somebody else. I mean, not only does does that not help the situation, but it leaves it to people who are very passionate about immigration, like Stephen Miller, you know, who's spent time studying the immigration laws, knows them inside and out. Some people take issue with that because he didn't go to law school and they think that he's described as, you know, somebody who's smarter than he is, but, but he understands the laws. And so if, if somebody doesn't take this on and decide to learn these issues as well as the really passionate conservatives have, then they're the ones who are in charge, and you know my reaction to to the vice president's reaction also is that you know I know when people get elevated to these high offices, you know they, they come with a list of things that they want to do, you know their projects that they've been grooming and thinking about for years, but you've got to deal with the issues that are in front of the country. You don't get to pick which crises to address and which not to address. So I don't know if I'm the right person to answer that question, but I chafed a little bit because I see how that kind of a reaction has, got, has made the situation worse.
1: Caitlin Dickerson is a reporter on immigration at The Atlantic. Caitlin, it was great uh, having you on the Gabfest last, a Dickerson who can talk cogently about something. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> please come back again.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Let us go to cocktail chatter. Emily, do you have a cocktail chatter for us this week?
4: This is totally frivolous,
3: but I can't resist recommending the video of this guy in Florida, this intrepid (laughs) man, (laughs) who captured an alligator in his garbage can while he was wearing flip-flops. Oh, my God. I just love this video and this guy so much. He's, like, patient. He's enterprising. He's kind of everything. And then also another guy set this video to song in a way that I also thought was really great. We will post the song, just the whole thing. It will amuse you for a nice two and a half minutes.
1: John, what's your chatter?
2: Well wait, can we just ruminate a little bit longer? I'm sorry to to listeners who haven't seen the video. Um But
3: really, you should stop what you're doing but you, right now.
2: You you should stop what you're doing right now and and see it because it's truly amazing and it has chapters. You know, there is I mean, I'm I I had no I really had no faith in how he was going to pull it off at the end. Not just the whole enterprise, which was itself ambitious in its scope and and creative in its application of of the uh the front yard receptacle but then the the way the lid comes into play it was really amazing plus while i watched it i was undergoing the exact opposite experience with register.com trying to get my password because they had my old email address and to the extent that the guy with the alligator everything was going right despite you know the fact he's in his flip-flops and it's an alligator um for me, everything was going wrong. And so it was like I had achieved a metaphysical boundary between the most perfect carrying off of an event and what I was experiencing, which was the absolute opposite. So it was metaphysically profound to me, too. I,
1: I wanted to know the sequel. I, I wanted to see what
2: happened after. Where did he, ta- he take it? Right. Where'd it go? Right. Yeah. Did he roll it somewhere?
3: Yeah, you do want the interview. I totally agree. Until we get the interview, the song I was recommending, um, it's from Jonathan Mann with two Ns. His Twitter feed is at Song A Man, also with two Ns, and he created a little folk song, an ode to Florida man catching his alligator.
1: Sorry, can, before we get to your chatter, John, I had another reverie. So I you you know how you get you're you're in your car and there's a bug in your car, and you're like, I don't want this bug in here, and you stop the car, and you kind of shush the bug out, you, if you, I mean, some people kill it, but if you can't kill it, you just like get that bee out the window, or get that fly out the window, I've often been like, maybe that's terrible, I've just consigned, this bee has now moved a mile from its original home in my car. And I've just let it out. And what's going to happen to it? It's not—it's not by its tribe. It doesn't know where to go. It doesn't know what to do.
3: I totally worry about that with ladybugs because I really like ladybugs, and I try to take them back. Also, worms because they could dry out, or frogs or toads. But David, the alligator, he should have just left the alligator to like mosey across the lawn.
1: No, no. I, but what? Where? I'm just thinking like he took that alligator somewhere, and then where to go? Does the alligator? Is the alligator away from its friends, its mother, its its The alligator
3: needs to go to, like, a nature preserve, no?
1: No, it's Florida. They live wild everywhere.
2: Huh. Uh, Okay. Yeah, I just... My immediate thought was that the next... In, like, two weeks, everybody in that municipality is going to get a sticker in the mail that has a picture of an alligator with a (laughs) slash through it and a circle that they're going to have to post under the penalty of a serious fine on their garbage uh, can.
3: Alligator sticker mandate. Because, you
2: know, when you buy something new and it has, like, 68 pages of prohibitions, you know? like, Like, don't stick your child in this pencil sharpener. You think, like, some... Moron stuck their <laughs> child in the pencil sharpener, and now they have to have a warning for it. So now we'll know why every trash garbage can has a don't put the damn alligator in here. Yeah. Um, my chatter is a, a double chatter. One is a quick, beautiful video uh, I learned about through CNN. It's a colorization of the um, 1900 parishioners walking through the Bois de Boulogne in Paris. Um, Uh, I probably mispronounced that, (laughs) but um, anyway, it's just uh, Parisian uh, park goers, but it's normally colorization I can't stand, but this is just gorgeous, and it's very transporting. Anyway, YouTube um, video by Glamour Days, um, all one word, go check it out, and the second is in the Bob Woodward and Bob Costa book, Peril, um, which I've slowly been making my way through. A lot of it feels like what you've read in other books, even though the details may be different, which is to say one person said this happened in the meeting and another person said this happened in the meeting. And Attorney General Barr, in particular, his recounting of meetings, he basically sounds like he was wearing a cape and flew in through the window. He is, his uh, what he told President Trump was so heroic. But, but what the book has that is uh, different than everything else you feel like you've read is the actual documents. And one of them is a transcript of a conversation between Nancy Pelosi and Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, in which Pelosi is, is badgering him about what uh, protocols are in place to keep President Trump from pushing the nuclear button or going to war. And, you know, again, in books like this, and as somebody who's reported these out, of course, you, you know, have to deal with what your sources tell you, and you check it and all of that. But there's a kind of dramatic flair to them sometimes. So when you have the transcript, it's just fascinating to, to hear what they say and don't say, and the nature of the conversation. And there's, there's a lot of that in the book, which is to say the original documentary evidence, not just relying on people's recollections. So that particular exchange is really a doozy. My chatter, uh, first
1: a chatter apology or chatter uh, update, which is that a lot of readers wrote in to tell me that there is tons of doubt about the research I cited last week about a meteor destroying a Dead Sea city back in 1650 BCE. There's, oh, bummer. There's been a lot of uh, skeptical taking apart of the of the claims made in that paper. Archaeologists and others have said that It is not nearly as persuasive as the article argues, and they go through in quite a lot of detail why the evidence does not point in the direction of a destructive meteor strike. That is not my chatter. My chatter is I read such a magnificent book this week, The Cult of We, which is about WeWork. WeWork, Adam Newman, and the Great Startup Delusion. Uh And it is, if you like bad blood, then you will love The Cult of We. It is... The absolute skin-crawling thrill of watching a con artist at work, the greed, the megalomania, the vanity on display is so incredible. The private jet abuse, the vanity we work schools, the mismatch between the idealistic rhetoric and the grubby, selfish reality of the business. It is so much fun. It's so much fun. I cannot recommend The Cult of We enough. And it, it made me think something else, which is that I love Bad Blood, too. I really love books about businesses gone wrong, especially when there is a charismatic con artist at the center of it. So if you could recommend other such books to me, I would like to read them.
2: Why uh, does that make you uh, thrill?
1: I think it's because—you you, want to get deep here for a second? I think it's because it's slight. it makes me feel cl- I, like, what do I worry about? I run a business, and I worry— I'm a CEO of a business. I worry like, Oh my God, am I a con artist? Am I doing something? Am I a megalomaniac and don't know it? Am I pursuing Vandy projects, uh, in ludicrous ways? I don't think I am. I don't right. think that's like,
3: certainly not at I that am. scale, David. So,
1: yeah. Not at the scale. Yeah. I don't, I haven't gotten to the private jet yet. I haven't hotboxed a private jet yet. Um, I haven't, I haven't taken, uh, the cash out of petty cash and spent $63 million on a Gulf Um, but, uh, it just i don't know it's like the thing that the thing that feels like these are the these people are close to me and yet they're the worst somehow you want to read you want to read about people who you feel are analogs to you but much worse than you and that's i guess that's that's maybe that's what interests me um, do you,
2: i yeah. also thought i really was-
1: like con, i really like reading about con artists
2: huh i yeah, I guess I find a little bit of interest from the sort of like could I have seen through this um, mm. which we'll get to there's a version of this in the in our that we'll talk about in our slate plus too, which is you know it's like the dunning Kruger effect, which is your own misestimation of your um acuity in ferreting out fraud and um also knowing that you'd be on the right um side of history and all that kind of stuff right so it's imagining
3: I, I, your great virtue and um ability to predict what was going to happen accurately, even though it wildly overstates the reality of what you actually know about your skills in that domain.
2: Right. I,
1: exactly. I would definitely be in the wrong side of history. Almost any example I can think of, I'd be in the wrong side because yeah. I'm so institutional.
2: The other possible thing also is, do you mean, David, because in the business world, like when you're selling a story to your editor or whatever, you're doing a little bit of a song and a dance. You're, you're, you're trying to make the wish the father of the thought. You're trying to, you know, fake it till you make it. And right. you're doing it in a kind of a low grade way. They're doing it at an absolutely grand and like profound, huge way.
1: Right. No, no, I'm obviously I'm not like this. This is not just any, my boss uh, just know this This is not how I operate, but it is, there is something about when you, these CEOs watching, I am a CEO. I'm a CEO of, I was just a CEO of a small business. I'm a CEO of another small growing business and watching how other people do it. Like when you watch how other someone does it and they do it incredibly successfully, and achieve what you have not managed to do, what you have not managed to build your billion dollar company. It's kind of a bummer. When you watch it and someone does it and they and they're just a fucking fraud and a shyster, then you think like, "Oh, okay. Well, then I don't need to feel so bad that my company is not yet worth a billion dollars." Or in Adam Newman Newman's case, you know, 47 billion dollars. <laughs> uh he is he's is, he's just an epic character. There's going to be such a fantastic documentary series one day about we work it will be so good because he and his wife are so charismatically wicked it it's going to be delightful because they're they're full of smug self-righteousness about what they're doing and that messianic self-righteousness is just the it's the Slarmiest. best ingredient it's the it's like the butter in any uh, docu-series um okay uh listeners you have sent us <laughs> some great chatters too This week's uh, listener chatter comes from Matthew Ringel. And I think it's a follow-up on something John was talking about. So please keep them coming to us at at SlateGabFest on Twitter. Hey, GabFest. My name is Matt. I'm in Seattle, Washington. Big fan of the show. Last week, John Dickerson mentioned potash in his chatter about the global fertilizer shortage. Well, my recommendation is for a video from a science educator named Derek Muller on his YouTube channel called Veritasium. In this video he dives into the story of potash, how it's made, what it's used for, and the fascinating connection it has all the way back to the founding of our country. This video has some history, a whole lot of science, and more than one explosion filmed in glorious slow motion. It's called These Pools Help Support Half the People on Earth. Check it out!
2: I think I also mispronounced potash when I said it. I think I called it potash. No, potash. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. That's alright. That's our
1: show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer, and Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest, and also tweet chatter to us there. And also send us conundrums at slate.com/conundrum, so we can have great conundrums for our conundrum show. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening to the GabFest. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. We have a really great Slate Plus questioner question from (laughs) listener questioner. Great Slate Plus questioner. Uh, Listener Jim Francis asks us, one idea he had was, assuming that podcasts have always existed in what year in our history for the entire year, Would each of you like to have had the Gab Fest and why? Love this question. Do we want to limit it to American history or global history? Global history. I have so many thoughts on this. Who wants to go first? You start. Okay. Well, I'm going to pick one, which I'm sure is also one that John picked. 1865, end of the Civil War.
3: How about 1863, 1861? You sort of want the whole 1860 vibe. Well, I now.
2: think, well, wait, hold on. Why do you Our pick Our show goes on forever. Why the... pick
3: a year? Anyway, okay. go ahead.
1: People always say, like, I talk over Emily, yes, she... and then you guys, like, talk over me. I, like, didn't even finish. I, like, hadn't even finished the year. I'd said 1865, and you guys were, like, down my throat.
2: First of all,
3: I'm correct about that.
2: I'm not. uh, She plots you. It was totally Emily. It wasn't me. I just joined in after she had come bounding into the room.
3: It's usually me. I am the interrupter offender on the show. Absolutely. I just get away with it because I'm a woman and uh, (laughs) it does not. And that's how
2: it goes. (laughs) Also, one other thing that happens is because. David and I both interrupt, although I don't do it very much because I'm a better human being than anyone else true. on the you planet. But um, is that people um, conflate David and me together? So it yes. seems like there's yes. like yes. this. You were blamed know, constant constant for my interruption.
1: interruption. It's, I'm never blamed for your interruptions because <laughs> you, you are not an interrupter. You have other, undoubtedly, you have other failings, but
2: that's not one of them. I love how you put Undoubtedly in there. They're, no they're on to zero anyone who's listening. Uh, so anyway, 1865,
1: Assassination <laughs> of Lincoln. The, I think the 15th Amendment is in 1865. The making of Reconstruction, the end of the war. That's a great one. 1945. GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Have you guys heard about the zebras? There's these zebras that have escaped in Maryland. They've just been wild in Maryland for a month.
2: I don't understand that. How did they get? Anyway, it's confusing.
3: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and
3: groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.